I'm Bryson Bort, and this is Hack the Plant, Season 3. Electricity, finance, transportation, our water supply. We take these critical infrastructure systems for granted, but they're all becoming increasingly dependent on computers to function. We walk through the world of hackers working on the front lines of cybersecurity and public safety to protect the systems you rely upon every day. From the ransomware threats of Colonial Pipeline to the failure of the Texas power grid, it is clear our interconnectivity is also a significant source of risk. This season, we take a look at issues arising with increased investment in renewable energy, which is relevant to the war in Ukraine, and continue to highlight unique insights across the spectrum of critical infrastructure. My day job, I'm the CEO and founder of Scythe, and the co-founder with Tom Van Norman of the nonprofit ICS Village, where we educate people on critical infrastructure security with hands-on examples, not just nerd stuff. I founded Grimm in 2013, a consultancy that works the front lines of these problems every day for clients all over the world. This is Hack the Plan, brought to you by the ICS Village. Catch us at an event near you. Subscribe wherever you find podcasts to get each episode as soon as it drops. I'm Bryson Bort, and this is Hack the Plant. For today's episode, I'm joined by Jason Healy, a senior research scholar at Columbia University School for International and Public Affairs, specializing in cyber conflict, competition, and cooperation. Jason is a pioneer of cyber threat intelligence with experience spanning 15 years across the public and private sectors. I invited Jason on the show after seeing an article that he published via the Lawfare Institute, looking at 25 years of White House cyber policies from the Clinton to the Biden administrations. If you look back at the very earliest White House document, Presidential Decision Directive 63, it came out in 1998, they're so optimistic back then, Bryce, and it's so cute to see. They say, you know, within five years, we're going to have, you know, most of this solved with 10 years, Americans' critical infrastructure will be secure, as if it was a one-off, as if we could just get it right once and then it would just be secure. But of course, we have intelligent adversaries and we keep inventing new technology. So even if we could get it to a state of security, we would move on. We discuss the evolving nature of threats and the extent to which cyber is necessary as a part of a defense strategy. One of the things that concerns me most from how cyber has been used against IT and OT, and particularly the lessons from Ukraine, is that we're underlearning. Because there's a sense, and you even see this to some degree in the new Department of Defense strategy that comes out, where they're saying, see, it's all about campaigning right? The way cyber is used is an intelligence contest, right? We're competing for information and, you know, no one's dying from the use of this stuff. And therefore we, you know, we need to worry, but we we shouldn't be over worried. Um, There's a theme of, hey, you know, like enough with the, the digital Pearl Harbor stuff, right? We've been talking about digital Pearl Harbor since 1991. You didn't see digital Pearl Harbors Maybe because you just generally didn't have Pearl Harbors of any kind of states trying to invade one another. As we've seen now, like now that states are invading each other for territorial gain, first in Ukraine, now maybe Armenia and Azerbaijan, we should expect to see cyber used in much more dangerous and risky ways. 
And the forefront of that, I'm afraid, is going to be in OT, because that's where adversaries can have a larger, longer-lasting impact on their adversaries. What changes have we made in our regulatory approach over the past 25 years? What are current strengths and threats in our cyber defense systems? Join us to learn more. So for the start, why don't we begin with you giving sort of one, two minute overview of you, your bio, kind of what, what mistakes led you to be in here? <laughs> yeah, so great. Thank you very much for having me to, to here at Hack the Plant. Um, I came into this field from, from the Air Force. I'd wanted to be a pilot and turned down my pilot training slot so I com- could compete to go into intelligence. And for about 20 Five years now, I've been in this field. I helped set up the very first military joint cyber command back in 1998. It was the predecessor for U.S. Cyber Command. Uh, it started out with just 25 of us. Um, stood up on 31 December 1998. Uh, was it then able to go to the private sector? Helped set up the first CERT capability at Goldman Sachs, vice chairman of the FSI SAC. Some time at the White House, both in 2000 through 2005, and then over the last year, where I helped draft the new national cybersecurity strategy. But really for the last eight, 10 years, uh, I really want to try and advance the field. I right? try and, and get out there and, and write and say, how can we get defense better? Not just for an individual enterprise, not just for an individual device. Those are important. But for the internet as a whole, because we've been suffering these problems for 50 years You can look back five decades and see people talking about the same things we're suffering through now. So what can we do now to make sure that our kids and grandkids 50 years on aren't having to suffer through the same things because we didn't fix them today? Okay. And bringing folks up to speed, uh, why don't you tell us about your work at Columbia? Yeah, thank you. So at Columbia University, about half of our work here, well, I'm in the School of International and Public Affairs. So my students and my research aren't really deep onto the technology side, right? We leave that to the computer science department, for example. But half our research looks at cyber conflict and cyber warfare, especially recently of saying, is cyber likely to escalate? Um, Is it as dangerous as we fear? Or is it maybe states don't really use it that way? Uh, The other half of our work here at Columbia University is looking at business and systemic cyber risk. So how can we get defense better than offense across the whole internet? We do work with the New York Fed on cyber risk to financial stability. And we do things like a um, cyber regulation lab and a new project. Are we winning? That's, uh, uh, can we, do we have indicators about whether cyber defense is getting better across the entire internet? All right. And what the catalyst was for me to invite you on the show was you wrote um, a two-part Um, article series in the Lawfare Institute looking at 25 years of White House cyber policies, um, beginning with the Clinton administration publishing the presidential decision 63. And then, of course, that's been updated this spring with the Biden administration publishing the latest cyber strategy, the national cybersecurity strategy. Uh, Can you provide an overview of what you wrote about? Yeah, so the White House has been trying to get their arms around these solutions for 25 years. If you look back at the very earliest White House document, Presidential Decision Directive 63, it came out in 1998, and they don't really mention operational technology, right? It's very focused on IT. Um, They're focused on um, critical infrastructure, but they don't really 
make any differentiation about about IT and OT. And it's they're so optimistic back then, Bryce, and it's so cute to see. They say, you know, within five years we're going to have, you know, most of this solved with ten years. Americans' critical infrastructure will be secure, as if it was a one-off, as if we could just get it right once and then it would just be secure. But of course, we have intelligent adversaries and we keep inventing new technology. So even if we could get it to a state of security, we would move off. So over the last 25 years, you've seen a lot of trends stay the same. White House doesn't give themselves public deadlines like that anymore to have the whole thing secure. But they've continued to talk about things like information sharing. They've continued to talk about um, a lot of these themes. Where you see the biggest difference, Bryson, is first off, is in regulation. They started 25 years ago in saying, look, the market, you know, our solution is going to be through the market. And we saw that all the way through um, uh, the Obama reports, uh, strategies and the strategies from the Trump administration. The biggest difference in this one, at least in, in, in the major content, is this new strategy coming out and saying that we need to regulate, that the market has failed. They, they, they talk about market failure at least five or six times and that we need regulation. And they push regulation in a couple different areas from um, software liability or liability for software manufacturers to baseline regulation for critical infrastructure. There's a lot more in here about operational technology. So it was nice to see these changes because it's like if you've seen you know, if you, if you like sports, right, I've, I've been watching a lot of American football lately, and you see teams that continue to lose, and you say, okay, well, we shouldn't be having consistency anymore between coaching, right? If, you, if you've been at this for 25 years, your strategy shouldn't keep covering the same things year after year, right? You've got to mix up your coaching style if you want to succeed. And we are suffering the same things from 25 years ago or even 50 years ago. So I am glad that the strategy made a break and started to go out in these new areas. Why does this not work through the market? I mean, you, you, you said you, you described it as cute and optimistic. And clearly, 25 years later, we needed something much more heavy handed. And we've seen a number of regulations in the different critical infrastructure verticals uh, coming down from government. So why do you think that is? And what more does that portend? Yeah, First off, Bryson, thanks, is to note just how much, right? Again, I'm not in the White House asserting that there was this, mar this market failure. Um, and they don't get too much into it, right, about what specific market failures they're talking about. It's, it's clear that um, to some degree they're, they're looking at soft squarely at software vendors about who cannot be held liable for the quality of their software, to large degree. Um, so clearly they're looking at, at that, and that seems to be one of them, one that's most supported. If you're looking at other areas, right, where you're saying, all right, well, there's an information asymmetry because, um, for example, government doesn't know what's happening, um, and therefore we, you must report to us. That might strike a lot of your listeners, or maybe even you, as, as an accurate assessment. But there's not a lot of homework done on that. Even the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States that just came out with their final rule 
on mandatory reporting of cyber incidents, they say in their own, look, our theory of the case is that investors need to know this and that if the investors know this, then it's going to lead to smarter investing. But they say right, right in the document um, that they put out that they don't actually have any proof about that, um, that they can't really point to any strong evidence, like academic studies, for example, that show that that's the case. So I think there is a, a little bit of a mismatch in how much we talk about market failure. And, and me too, right? I talk about market failure. I do think there are market failures. But we do need to go down to that next level and say, okay, exactly where are the market failures? Which sectors have which market failures? And I understand uh, you have an idea that you've been cooking up at Columbia on that. Well, we're starting to dive in. Um, we're starting to, because it, it really, I, I scratched my head on this when I was at, at the Office of National Cyber Director um, last year and into this year, of really starting to dive in. For example, the strategy says regulations need to be performance-based. Um, and I realize I've been in the field for 25 years. I'm not quite sure what performance-based means. In general, I, I, I suspect it means, well, I, I think they mean not checklist-based, um, that we ought to be giving the regulated entities the most freedom to, to figure this out. Um, so we've been diving in and saying, okay, what, do we, what does it mean by performance-based? Do, really do we really mean performance-based or do, do we mean something else? And you can see sometimes the, the companies themselves are a little confused about this. Because they tell the government, you need to give us freedom to figure out how to do this to ourselves. But on the reporting for the SEC guidance, they've said, you need to give us more what you mean by materiality. That is, you need to give us more rules about what you mean so that know that we, we know that we're more precisely fitting in what it is that you want. Are there initiatives that you see that give you hope or that you think are going to bear more fruit leading to me, I always I look at government regulation as best when it's iterative, right? Take a baby step, see what happens, adjust, then grow, double down on what works. Um, so, are there things that you see that you think are going to lead that way, or, or you know, and even the other way, cautionary tales that you think we're we're still going the wrong direction? Yeah, boy, I'm 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 with you on that, Bryson, of wanting to go to go iterative, um, and I think it's been one of my surprises of seeing the process and the players a little bit more because um, it really is less iterative than jerks and starts, right? There's a, like you go look back to the very earliest information sharing regulations um, or legislation by Congress. Instead of saying, hey, here's a small change and this change is going to help um, and it's going to help us in these particular ways and then after this change is in place, then we can, we'll, we'll do the next minor change. Way too often, each change is sold as, oh my God, if we do this, we're going to be awesome. And, and you see that in technology too, right? I mean, for the last, I mean, certainly the 25 years I've been in this, I've seen one technology after another on the IT side where that said this was going to solve it, right? Originally it was firewalls or intrusion detection systems or, or IPsec or right? each one of these was, oh my God, this is now, now it's AI has gone through on the IT space or, or zero trust, right? And man, if we do this thing, we're gonna be in good shape. And so because I think we, over, we can sometimes oversell, especially where we need Congress to work, um, it's been so difficult to get things through that um, we end up maybe leaning too much on how much gains we're gonna have for, for any one of these that comes out. 
I think that's we're especially going to see this in regulation. I'm happy to some degree that we've got CERCIA, which is the mandatory um, cyber reporting that that CISA is working on the rulemaking. Because to what you had said, Bryson, right? If you if you want to figure out what works and then double down on that, you regulate first for trans for transparency. You say let's make sure that there's no silent failure. Let's make sure that everybody knows the quality of these things. And then we can start to figure out where the problems are because we've regulated. And I think you can see this in physical infrastructure, right? One way that you can say um, you can regulate the emissions from a plant is you can just say you can't have more than X, Y, or Z parts per million, or you have to use best available control technologies. Another way of doing it, and this has been very successful in a lot of places, is you need to report what's coming out of your smokestack so the people um, that are downwind can understand the risk. And a lot of times those regulations are easier to get in place than those that are looking for direct command and control. For direct command and control is you can, can't have any more than these parts or um, you, know, you must make your product with X, Y, and Z or, or forgoing A, B, and C. So I really think that, that pushing for transparency is, is going to be um, one of the most important ways that we can move forward the way you say. So in the national cybersecurity strategy, the biggest change that I think gets our attention is regulation, and, and for a good reason. It really is the biggest change um, that's going to affect companies. What I'm really happy about, Bryson, and I don't think it gets enough attention, is the two shifts that they talk about. Right? You had asked, well, let's, do small, let's take more small steps and iterate. And I think the strategy has an important step towards that because it says we need to be thinking about the next decade. And none of the previous strategies, like although back, I guess maybe you can include that very first where they had a deadlines, right? They tended to say, here's a list, here's a to-do list, right? Go, we have to go do these things. And, and they all had the same priority. Like it was all, right? if your boss tells you, um, here's a list of things and you say, okay, well, what do you want me to do first? No, here's, here are these things. No, you need to know what, what happened first. So the strategy says, We've got 10 years to do some of these, right? They're, these are going to take a long time and it's okay to iterate. But it also says, one, what's our overall goal? And that's a more defensible internet. And implied in that, it might, it might even say, you know, more defensible OT as well. Um, you know, everything that's, that, that's connected. Um, so one, it gives, what's our, what's our end state look like? More defensible. Two, it says, um, how are we going to get there? The problem, one of the problems of previous strategies is it never said who's going to pay, right? So it's nice to have a strategy, but if you don't say at the end of the day, who's going to be holding the buck, um, then you're, you haven't made the hard decisions. This one is very clear that, that the government wants to shift the burden from the people that are using these devices. I think this is especially important in the, in the OT space, right? You're getting these devices from the manufacturer and they may or may not work the way as advertised. They might not have the security that, that you expect. And so we can no longer rely on the, the users and the companies that are buying and using these things and put all of the burden on them. Given this entirely, incredibly complex system of systems and then blame them when they can't do it correctly. So more burden is going to be on those that have more power. That's the U.S. government. That's the vendors that are selling these, um, and so I think these are really uh, this is a really important way to get here. If, if I can use a military analogy, um, 
the right if you were a um, a sergeant working for General Petraeus and you were going into a tribal village, right? You knew generally what the strategy was. You knew what Petraeus wanted, even though he was your boss 12 times up because the general was clear that he wanted gen, you know, uh, heart, win hearts and minds um, in general, right? So you, it might be difficult for that sergeant to understand exactly what that means in this situation, but he gets the general's intent because it was a simple strategy. Likewise, if you worked for a different leader, you know, one that wanted you to engage with the adversary, yeah, again, the sergeant might be difficult for him to know what to do at that particular moment, but he's got the big picture. So I'm thrilled that this strategy gets down to saying, we want to get, defen we want to get defensible, here's the way we're going to go about it. And it might be confusing in any particular situation, but at least the president's intent is a lot more clear. So one of the challenges we have in OT is that um, vendors restrict a lot of things you can do with the systems, like mm -hmm. um, being able to understand the hardware, the software, the protocols. Um, it's it, 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 you, you kind of work with what the documentation is. Um, now, I've never thought really hard about the why of that. Certainly, I've only considered the implication from a security operations perspective, because you have to deal with that. Um, but most of the stuff really isn't on the vendor. It's on the organization itself to properly configure and maintain the, the devices um, versus like a regular consumer, which sounded more like the direction you were going. Yeah, I think the White House and, and CISA need to go to the next step when it comes to what do these concepts mean for IT and for the cybersecurity of physical assets in general, right? So they've, I think they're on the right path and these ideas apply. So defensibility for the internet as a whole. Well, we've got some indicators we can think about that. We know which vendors, right? Uh, we know which companies we tend to think about in that, you know, like Microsoft and Google. And we can think about how things like software liability apply, especially how that affects different kinds of consumers, you know, whether that's a mom and pop or whether that's us or individuals or whether that's Goldman Sachs. So um, I think it will be interesting to see as the administration and the, um, the departments and agencies start to walk that through and boil it down to OT. I'm really happy that there are people at ONCD like, like Cheryl Caddy that's in the, the strategy team, right? Helping to push through cyber-informed engineering, um, the work that's been done out of the Department of Energy to start putting cyber into the engineering side more strongly. Um, so there's a lot that right now White House is doing on smart energy um, and looking um, on that side. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this work, that OT is much more stronger this time, but there is still a little bit more thinking that we have to go through about that role of the, of the, of the vendors and the consumers in this space. One of the changes I think that might make a big difference, and this was an idea that Cheryl Caddy had been talking about at White House, was, hey, we've got a CIO council for the IT community. And she said, well, why don't we have the equivalent for the OT side, um, where we've got you know, the equivalent of, of the CISOs that are coming together for the IT side, and, and, and it's for the folks on o OT. 
it doesn't exist, right? That's one of those relatively easy steps that can improve government, that all of the departments and agencies, the people that are involved in OT in general, the equivalent of the CIO council, and then the security of those, equivalent to the, C to the CISOs, that are meeting monthly or quarterly, right? So that they have a process to review what's, hap review what's happening. Like, what do they have in place? And just like the way the White House used some of their, um, in the past documents, one called Executive Order 14028, that was using the purchasing power of government to try and improve the quality and security of software and IT, pushing things like zero trust, that perhaps the government through such council that's looking at OT um, might be able to push you know, better um, security through acquisition or at least get the government to be doing a better job themselves. Is that okay? Yeah, uh, just uh, letting that last statement roll in my head about the getting the government to do a better job itself. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and right, right. It's, it's easy to laugh, say, you know, the government should do a better job itself. But here on the one hand, you've got the regulating part of these agencies and departments going to the private sector and saying, hey, you need to do better. We don't care that if this stuff is hard to secure out of the box and it's complex, that's up to you. <laughs> but, you know, the part of the government that uses this stuff itself is suffering through those same, through those same areas. So um, through these different ways of governance and communication, hopefully we can bring those together so that we can have both smarter regulation and better OT. Well, going back to you were talking about how these technologies come in purporting to, to solve the problem to... Um, at best, per increasing the cost to the the attacker somewhat. Um, let's let's shift to the conversation from what we're doing internally here to your views of the threats. Um, I know that one of my favorite things I've ever seen you put out there was talking about the different levels of support of nation states to different actors. Um, as a way to understanding what those motives might be, what those capabilities might be. Um, so why don't we orient the readers with that and then go from your additional thoughts on, on threat activities. So Bryce, I'll be interested to get your opinion on this, but one of the biggest debates right now um, amongst the international affairs community, right? So the scholars and practitioners and to some degree the military that, um, that worry about diplomacy and international relations and warfare is is cyber really as dangerous we, as we've said, right? You've got some people that look at how cyber capabilities have been used over the past two decades, how it's currently being used in Ukraine, and they say, see, it's difficult to use this stuff um, uh, well, and it's frankly not as dangerous as we think. I tend to be on the more pessimistic side of saying, yeah, it's true, right? States have been using this and, and none of them have been that bad that so far. But honestly, we've gotten a bit lucky, <laughs> right? You know, when the Russians tried to take down the Ukrainian grid the first couple of times, um, uh, if they would have been just a touch luckier, if they would have just been a little bit better, um, then we could have seen far more um, cascading than even catastrophic impact. If Russia hadn't been so bad right now in attacking Ukrainian um, IT and OT, that 
things could be a lot worse in Ukraine. So I definitely come down on, on the side it could be a lot worse. And to me, it's frankly comes down to the role of OT, right? The, the people that don't worry so much will argue a lot about how cyber is, can be reversible and non-lethal. And that's true, right? Especially if you're targeting IT. If you're targeting things made of one and zeros or things made of silicon, it's not a cyber can often not be that big a deal. But the more that we're doing smart grid, the more that we're doing industrial control systems and other things connected to the internet, now it's not just things made of ones and zeros in silicon that cyber attacks can take down. It's things made of concrete and steel. And, and so it does worry me a bit that we're, that, um, I think to some degree, even Department of Defense is getting a little bit complacent in this. Now, what do, what do you, what's your thoughts? Lots of thoughts. Um, to your original question of the lethality and impact potential, it's kind of a yes and no. Um, when you look at Ukraine, first of all, you can't look at Ukraine without recognizing that there was a significant amount of US defense assets posted forward to help them. Um, I mean, there was, there's never been sort of a larger bulwark of looking at prevention, detection, and incident response than what happened in that theater. Um, second part of that is the Russian military, because there's, there's, there's two real ways to attack critical infrastructure. The first is what we saw there with Indestroyer and Indestroyer 2, which are what I would say without being ironic, um, those are military-made cyber weapons, right? I crafted code deliberately to do specific things on a target. And in Destroyer, that first happened during the, the first push, uh, was fairly successful. In Destroyer 2, in looking at it, was very slapdash. And what that teaches us is that this kind of stuff, you can't just all of a sudden be like, hey, from a military strategy or a tactic, we're going to all of a sudden start doing this. It takes a lot of work. Um, both in targeting access and the packages themselves to be successful at the level that you need them for military precision. So that that's the kind of thing where your 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 capability needs to be built well in advance of having to use it with all of those phases considered. Um, the second part there is at some point you'll notice the Russians switched from cyber attacks to doing things the old-fashioned way which I think speaks to the fact, as I joke about it, splody things work best. <laughs> um, a, you know, putting rounds on objective is the best way to destroy something versus trying to be clever. Um, and so that's, that's a lot of thoughts. I don't know that's coherent toward a specific answer other than the critical infrastructure that we have because of its nature by design is designed to be resilient. And that gives it a lot toward this. Um, not completing the other thought where I said that there's two approaches. So besides the military grade, the second is the traditional um, hacking approach of I break into IT, I move laterally, and then I use organic capabilities um, to be able to do what I want to do in the industrial control system environment. So the way we see, I always joke, PowerShell is 90% of commercial offense in IT. <laughs> it's the same principle in OT where those organic protocols, and by the way, PowerShell is one of them, because um, there are plenty of Windows uh, computers in an, a, an OT environment, so PowerShell works the same way, but now there's all these additional protocols and pieces. Um, so my favorite example of that is 
taking over an HMI, I no longer have to do discovery. I don't have to understand any specific protocols that are in your environment. I just need to tell it to do the commands that are already there to the things it already talks to. And I have complete access and impact on what I want. To your point on how difficult that this can be, right? That that industry two was more slapdash. And now you see the 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 reporting that's coming out of, from the Ukrainians is the Russians aren't even really trying to to maintain persistence in their environment. They're getting in, they're just trying to cause uh, disruption or pull, pull out as many emails other as content as they can, expecting that they're going to be going to be caught. This was actually one the first less uh, the, the first doctorates that got written in this field for international relations and cyber was Greg Rattray. He'd been the former CISO at JP Morgan before that had been a colonel in the Air Force. And he did this long dissertation on comparing this to the Air Force in the interwar years, right? Around after the lessons of World War One, all of these um, early air power pioneers, um, Julio Duhay, Billy Mitchell, Sir Hugh Trenchard, all said, oh my God, the bomber's always going to get through. And the U.S. Army Air Corps, had they had a mathematical formula that if Congress would only allow the Army Air Corps to buy like 415 B-17s, then they could win the war with Germany in 232 days. They had it proven, like they had it all mathematical out. And of course, we learned in, in World War II that it's not that easy. The bomber doesn't always get through that. Um, defenses improve, um, especially when, when they're under stress, that, um, that it's just generally more difficult to have this kind of big impact. Um, you can't just flick your finger and you're going to take down a nation's industry. And, you know, to some degree, Russia was, is learning that again over Ukraine, right? So if it was difficult to do um, with planes dropping actual, you know, thousands of tons of bombs in World War II, and we couldn't have that impact, right? It's not necessarily going to be easier with cyber. Have you read uh, Malcolm Gladwell's The Bomber Mafia? No, no. no. Yeah, that absolutely covers that kind of mentality, right? Yeah, well, so he goes through and he breaks it up into um, the two opposing views of how to approach the the coming warfare, because um, the Greg Rattray's metaphor, I believe, really is that the airplane it had the same innovation to the battlefield potential that cyber did. And that's kind of the leading back to this question that we raised here on looking at the threat. And so, you know, we've never done this before. What actually works? How do we do it in the lab? How do we do it in training? How do we do it in testing versus the real world environment where they're particularly in warfare, there are all of these variables that are going to change and alter the plan after we're uh, underway. And in the book, um, he talks about, I mean, the years of investment that goes into creating this top secret, highly controlled bomb site. And this is the site that finally solves the problem of we're going to be up really high and we need to have precision bombing, right? If, 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 the, if the idea here is we're going to take out things like the ball bearing story um, against Germany, which um, apparently was not as effective as we would the as most people seem to think in the way it's been uh, described historically. You got to actually put the bombs where you think. And right. so there's all of this effort that goes into this thing. And these things don't work. They literally don't work in the field at all. Um, and then there was another example where they were talking about bombers going over to try to hit Japan and their airspeed was saying they were going negative. And nobody had any idea what that meant. They're like, how is that possible? How is the plane going backwards? 
And that turned out to be where we discovered the jet stream that until that point, we didn't even know existed. <laughs> right. So, but, you know, to carry on with this analogy, right, flight, we, we figured out powered flight in 1903 from the Wright brothers. By 1918, for the Battle of San Miguel, we had basically, within 15 years, airmen had essentially discovered every one of the missions of how you use air um, and put almost all of them under um, a single commander supporting the fight on the ground, right? So Billy Mitchell had brought these together um, with close air support and um, fighters and interdiction and reconnaissance and the rest, right? It was only 15 years after the very first time the Wright brothers came to the air, right? But we're now five decades into this, right? The first time we realized that um, security cannot be retrofit afterwards, I think was the exact quote, it was October 1972, right? So it's been 51 years. That same document was a report to the Air Force um, that ended up being called the Anderson Report. It was also the first time I can find in print that they said um, the red team always gets through. Right? So we've known, which implies that not just the red team always gets through, but the attacker generally gets through. Right? So we're 50 years on in this, um, whereas they'd figure out air in, in basically just 15. Um, if, I can, if I can tie back. Um, you can. I will. One of the things that concerns me most um, from how cyber has been used against IT and OT, and particularly the lessons from Ukraine, um, is that we're under, we're under learning. Because there's a sense, and you even see this to some degree in the new Department of Defense strategy that comes out, where they're saying, see, it's all about campaigning, right? The way cyber is used is an intelligence contest, right? We're competing for information. Um, and, you know, no one's dying from the use of this stuff. And therefore, we, you know, we need to worry, but we, sh we shouldn't be over worried. Um, there's a theme of, hey, you know, like enough with the, the digital Pearl Harbor um, stuff, right? We've been talking about digital Pearl Harbor since 1991, <laughs> right? It's been 31 years now. Um, 32 years, uh, we, can, we can probably let that go. That's not how it's used. But all of that is built on the assumption that the future is going to look mostly like a, the past, right? Almost our entire history of how states use cyber capabilities was the post-Cold War era. And it might not feel like it today looking back, but that one was the, that was the biggest period of peace in human history just about, right? Almost every kind of cross-border violence went down in the post-Cold War years, right? We weren't seeing states use um, cyber capabilities to cause death and destruction in their neighbors because they weren't using any kind of capabilities to cause death and destruction in their, in their neighbors generally, right? Uh, there's some obvious exceptions. Um, you know, what's happened um, uh, in Azerbaijan and Libya and, you know, um, you know in U.S. in, in um, Iraq and Afghanistan, but right but between states, they weren't invading each other for territorial gain, right? You didn't see digital Pearl Harbors, maybe because you just generally didn't have Pearl Harbors of any kind of states trying to invade one another. As we've seen now, like now that states are 
invading each other for territorial gain, first in Ukraine, now maybe um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. Um, we should expect to see cyber used in much more dangerous and risky ways. And the forefront of that, I'm afraid, is going to be in OT, because that's where adversaries can have a larger, longer lasting impact on their adversaries. Really dialing in on what you were saying there about the post-Cold War state of affairs, you were talking here as this ties into deterrence and how deterrence leads to uh, international stability or form mm -hmm. of it. Let me free yeah. <laughs> a form of it. Deterrence is definitely one of the ways that we can keep ourselves um, safe. And hopefully our adversaries can too, right? One of the advantages of Cold War deterrence is the Soviets could be pretty sure that we weren't going to launch on them either, just like we were because we knew we would get punished. So, right, it ends up, at least in the Cold War version of deterrence, with both sides feeling reassured, right? You can't really trust the other guy, but through deterrence and this mutual assured destruction, you know, it, it led to some kind of balance. So it'll be interesting to see how deterrence plays out in this space, right? It's very different from that mutually assured destruction, right? Um, the United States has gotten themselves into um, uh, the new Department of Defense cyber strategy says, you have to use cyber, right? The point of nuclear weapons was to not use them. The, officially right now, the DOD strategy is, look, these things don't have any deterrence value unless you're getting out and you're using them. So this leads to a very different set of deterrence dynamics than we than we think about, um, even even for air power or, or or you know armor or anything else, right? Um, if you use it like you're wearing it down, <laughs> right? You know you might want to have some exercise and you might want to show a force like to have a cruiser or a destroyer come by, um, but we've got to be out engaging with the adversaries, and that's where the deterrent value comes through. At least that's the current DoD strategy. All right. Any last thoughts on that? One of the issues is that the policymakers and the academics and the people that are involved in the decisions are basing it too much on IT. Now, if I'm right in that we're facing maybe a much more dangerous future because OT is going to be the target much more than it has been in the past years because adversaries want to have something that's non-reversible. They're okay to go for something that's more lethal. Um, then we can really use people in the IT space to get published in these places that the policymakers read um, and the academics read. Like places like Lawfare is a great one where a lot of the debate happens. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you think I'm right or you think I'm completely wrong or, or you know, by, Bryson's right or wrong um, or anyone else you hear on this great podcast, you know, there's a lot of folks that are looking for that content and they would love to be hearing from this community because right now too much of the conversation is dominated by the people that just know IT. I would also offer you just gave a ringing advertisement for our policy conference, Hack the Capital, of which the mm -hmm. seventh annual one will be next year. Wow. Up to seven already. Wow. Yeah. I know. It's crazy, right? I remember when I started it. I'll just... um. I don't think this is for taping, but I'll um I'll, I'll jump it in. So I'm, I'm I love that you brought a cap, hack the capital because it's one of these great ways that the technical folks can connect in with the policy community and vice versa, right? It really brings things across. So 
I've had this unique role of both having been in the White House and also on the board of uh, the review board for Black Hat and DEF CON. So one of the folks that was talking to the policy community, but also right part of the um, the the con community and and helping that happen. And I had this amazing day. I was in the White House. It was um, uh, earlier this year, late last year. And I was in the new executive office building and I was just walking past and I see people at one of the conference rooms with blue hair. Like, that's odd, you don't see this. And it was a lot of the crowd, the Hack the Capital and other crowd that were in to do a review of the, the draft national cybersecurity strategy. And so it's this huge bump. But like ONCD had 15 people, I'm sorry, the office of the White House, Office of the National Cyber Director had at least 12 people that were out at DEF CON engaging with the community and learning. So I think we really have some great opportunities, right? These communities are really starting to come together in a way that they hadn't. So if you're interested, like hack the Capitol, do, um, get involved with your, with your state legislatures or the regulators to help them understand, like people, people need to know what the audience of this podcast knows. All right. Are you ready? Check. Okay. If you could wave a magic non-internet connected wand, what is one thing you would change? because I've already gotten a fair chunk of my wish. And a big part of my wish was that we would start setting out the goal for a defensible internet, that we would, we would lay that out in a White House document. Because previously, we, all we said was that, oh, it's a, it's a balance between offense and defense. Well, no, the president has been clear that we need to get things more defensible in this new strategy. And I'm hopeful that if we have that as the goal, like a real strategy, that this is what we're aiming for and how to get there, that the mechanism of government is going to do a better job than we have over the past 25 years trying to deliver it. So uh, I've already gotten half the wish. The other half is if I could say, all right, what's one single area that we can, that is going to aid the defender more than the attacker? Because we've done work at Columbia University, we've said, okay, what have been the defensive innovations over the last 50 years that's given the attacker the greatest advantage over attackers at the largest scale and least cost, right? There's things like Windows Update, right? Something that where the, per the organization that was in the position to make the change um, was able to do the smallest turn of the screwdriver and have the biggest impact. For me right now, I think that would be on software liability. I think it's if we can get that even three quarters right, I'll take a half-assed job on software liability. Um, because if we can get that, then hopefully it simplifies a lot else that happens in the market. Because now the burdens on defenders should be substantially less because instead of having whatever crap software they have, um, they can hold the, the vendor liable if they're not making sure it's in the IT space, for example, you know, frequently updated that they've got a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program and the rest. All right. You've waved your magic wand. Wand wave. Looking into the crystal ball for a five-year prediction, one good and one bad thing. One I'm curious about that's on, that's on the balance is AI. Because you see, like you go there, you'll see a lot of articles about how AI is going to help the defenders because it helps with automation, or we're going to be able to find vulnerabilities better. 
but there's just as many articles on how AIs can help the attackers, right? And so I keep coming back whenever I hear a new technology, like, is this going to preferentially aid the attackers or defenders? And we just don't know right yet. So I'm going to put AI on both sides. Um, uh, software liabilities on the good. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that the more that we can dive into cloud on the IT side, um, right, a lot of the problems I, I hope are just growing pains. And the more that we have people that are more cloud native, that we're going to be able to, and apps that are cloud native, we're going to get past a lot of these security issues to really give us defense at scale. And the downside I'd already talked about. We are going to be seeing over the next five years a lot more geopolitical um, conflicts and crises. Um, and states are going to be willing in those crises to take more cyber risks than they had. And I'm afraid that those cyber risks are going to affect OT before we have gotten OT security to the point that it needs to be. All right. That's the show. Great. This is Hack the Plant, a podcast from the ICS Village. Catch us at an event near you. Subscribe wherever you find podcasts to get episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks for listening.